Brunt arrested in Izmir, Turkey. Uh, for 23 years, he and his wife, Noreen, had been living there in Turkey, ministering at Resurrection Protestant Church. Earlier that year, um, in the same area, Kurdish terrorists had launched an attempted coup against the government and failed to overthrow it. And so in an effort to squash this resistance, the Turks imprisoned thousands of people. And that included anyone that they felt was any type of affront, any type of threat uh, to their rule. And surprisingly, that included Pastor Brunson and his wife. At first, when they were detained, they were detained together. And that lasted about 13 days. But after 13 days' time, Noreen was sent home, and Pastor Brunson was put into solitary confinement. No charges at that time were explained. No access to any lawyer was given um, until he found out that he was in prison, accused of terrorism and accused of assisting in the uprising. Neither, of course, were true. He was also accused of attempting to be the leader of a Christian Kurdish state. He was used as an example, is truly what was going on, in an attempt to get other Christian missionaries to self-deport. And so he was used as a political tool to begin to move the Christians out. And there he stayed in solitary confinement for a long time. Um, at another point, he was placed in a cell designed for eight people with 20 others. And so 21 people in an eight-person cell, um, each one of these others being actual terrorists. All told, Brunson spent over two years in prison before a global movement of prayer and uh, political pressure from the United States led to his release. Though he was convicted of espionage and of conspiring and partnering with terrorists, he was sentenced to time served and uh, deported to the United States. Now, I've read some of the things that he um, described about his two-year imprisonment, and it's harrowing. He, he's written a book about it, which I haven't had the chance to read yet. Um, but I've read several of his interviews, and what I loved about his account of his experience is that he does not sugarcoat or gloss over how difficult it was and how uh, painfully he responded to it. You know, instead of coming out and, and being like, ah, I kept the faith, he was very honest about how alone he was, how separated from God he felt. He said this in, in one interview, he said, I was the only Christian in prison, and the only Christian I had any contact with throughout my two years was Noreen, his wife. So I was very alone, isolated in my faith. I prayed for peace so much, but I did not feel much peace. Grace was taking me through, but finding strength, determination, peace, and joy was actually much more difficult than I expected. So I didn't feel people praying for me. I had grace, but it was an unfelt grace. In my first year in prison, I broke repeatedly. That theme of an unfelt grace. Acknowledging that, yes, grace was there. I believe that grace is what carried me through, but I didn't feel it. I believe it was there, 
but I did not feel it. He described how difficult it was to be in solitary confinement, that he broke emotionally, spiritually, and physically, that in the first year of prison, he lost 50 pounds, that he went into total spiritual crisis. And he described how that made him go through this terrifying feeling of a total loss of control. And, and crying out to God, you could release me, but you're not doing it. And the frustration that, that came from that. So at one point afterwards, a reporter asked him if, if he felt forsaken by God while he was there. And he said, yes, at times I did. And I was very surprised. Many of the biographies I have read of who I would call Christian heroes, my heroes, they show very strong people. And I expected that when I was suffering, I would have also felt that strength. Instead, I felt very broken and weak. I love that. Because as he came out of prison, he became, for many people worldwide, a hero of the faith. He became someone who was an example, as we'll talk about, uh, of someone who held up under pressure, who held up under tribulation, under persecution. He kept the faith. He's a hero. And yet here he is admitting, listen, I thought that based on the biographies that I've read of these heroes, that that they would have this, this strength and this power and this vigor. And I didn't feel any of that at all. I felt abandoned. That's an incredibly honest assessment that I feel like we need to hear. So deep was his despair that at times he contemplated suicide. At one point, the Turkish government was threatening to give him three life sentences in solitary confinement with no parole. This led him to a deep place of spiritual darkness. A place where he says, I lost all hope. I was in despair, and I had frequent panic attacks. So, in light of all that, in this darkness, in this feeling of abandonment, in this feeling of despair, locked in solitary confinement in a prison in a foreign nation, being treated like an animal, what did he do? He turned his mind. He did not and he could not change his circumstances. He couldn't do anything to change the prison. The one thing that he could do was to turn his mind upward. He says, I began to focus myself on God and fight for my faith. I became aware that I could do very little to fight for my freedom, but I thought, I'm losing my relationship with God in this terrible environment. And I need to focus, because if I lose this, then I've lost everything in my life. I felt abandoned by God, and in those circumstances, it was easy to let my heart grow cold. But as my wife, Noreen, reminded me, whatever doubts you have, God remains the same. He is faithful. He is true. One thing I really tried to focus on was cultivating the fear of God, having an eternal perspective, seeing things through His eyes. I knew that if I feared God the way Isaiah did, I would be more willing to undergo any hardship, which would confirm that he is worthy of all my pain and suffering. So my first year was a breaking year. I broke thoroughly, repeatedly, and then God rebuilt me. One of the things I believe he really wanted to do in me was to show me how to devote myself to him and be faithful 
in the absence of feeling his presence and the normal means of encouragement. Even if I don't see his love or his faithfulness, even when I don't have his presence or his voice, and I don't feel any grace, am I going to be faithful to him? Am I going to embrace him in spite of my circumstances? In spite of feeling abandoned, am I going to be faithful? Am I going to pass this test and just press into him? It was in his second year in prison that he says he experienced not so much a breakthrough spiritually, but a shifting. And that shift led to a spiritual rebuilding. He says, and that was a decision. And that's a key word. That was a decision on my part to lay aside my conditions and expectations of God and simply be faithful to him. So I said, whatever you do or don't do, I will follow you. If you do not give me your voice, I'll still follow. If you don't give me your presence, I'll still follow you. If you do not set me free, I'll still be faithful. I'm going to fight for my relationship with you and choose to turn my eyes toward rather than away. In the weakness, at the bottom of my pit, I knew I might only be able to turn slightly in his direction. But even if I turned one degree toward him, that was all the difference in the world than turning one degree away. That mindset positioned me into a place where he could begin to rebuild me. Everything didn't just suddenly change. It was still difficult, but a decision of the will to pursue him. After that, there was a series of steps that he began to take. Disciplines. Persevering in disciplines, he says, that as he practiced them again and again, those things rebuilt him. Among the disciplines, he says, he cultivated was dancing five minutes a day. In obedience to the command, Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil things about you on account of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Now, dancing in his cell does not mean in any way that Brunson was happy about being there. He was choosing to obey this command in spite of what he felt. He said, I knew I needed to actually be rejoicing, although I had no joy. And in obedience, I would just perform an act of joy. He said, as I did that day after day, even though I had no feeling, that discipline ended up building in me a stronger obedience. I ended up focusing on heaven more. Rejoice and be glad, for great is my reward in heaven. I repeated that to myself again and again. Another example would be worship. For a long time, I could not worship. I just couldn't sing, great is your faithfulness, because I would just choke up. I was so wounded in my heart. Noreen told me, you need to worship. So it was a discipline. I didn't feel like it. But as I worshipped, it ended up building in me a commitment to worship in all circumstances. As God began to rebuild me, I started to sense an upward trajectory. I prayed almost every day for the character of Jesus, for his strength, his courage, and especially endurance, steadfastness, perseverance. A number of disciplines ended up reshaping my perspective over time and refocusing my heart. And so, after 
he came back to the United States and he reflected back on that experience. He says that it changed his heart and that it changed his faith. He says, there are actually a number of things that came out of my imprisonment in my own heart. Even though it was two years of the silence of God, I came out with a different intimacy, more confidence in my relationship with him, which comes from having been tested and proving myself. It's the difference between a soldier who has been trained and has skills and one who has the same training and skills but has also been in battle. So in a sense, I would say my love for God was real and sincere before I went to prison, but it was severely tested and I I proved it. Kind of like how Abraham was willing to sacrifice Isaac. Maybe God knew what he would do, but Abraham didn't know. And until he did it, he had actually not proven it. And once he does it, God says, now I see, now I know. And so I think, I think there's a testing and the proving of our love and faithfulness that brings us to a different level of friendship with God, where he can trust us more. It also gives me a different level of confidence because I know that I passed the test. So in that way, I came out with a broader, more strengthened intimacy with him than I had ever before. I came out loving him more because I paid a price for him. I feel like I've invested in this relationship. What Brunson is describing for us in beautiful, painful words is lament. In Lamentations 1, we learned that lament is a cry to a father that we trust is listening to us. In chapter 2, we learned that lament is joining God in judgment, but also joining God in mourning. And today, we will see that lament is preaching the gospel to your broken heart. Preaching the gospel to yourself. Repeating it over and over and over. Lament does not pretend. Lament does not minimize or ignore As we have already seen very clearly in this series, lament looks fully at the wreckage. It welcomes God and welcomes others into the fullness of the wreckage. It does not hide from the damage. It fully and it tearfully expresses it. But at the same time, lament chooses as an act of the will. Remember that word, decision. It chooses as an act of the will to turn the mind upward, choosing to hold on to eternal hope. Lament is tear-stained worship. It is not pleasant, but it is profoundly life-changing. Without lament, the pain of the trial will destroy us. But through the preaching of the gospel to ourselves over and over and over, we can do what Pastor Brunson did, and that is to turn slightly in God's direction. And that makes all the difference in the world. Today, we'll be reading Lamentations chapter 3. Lamentations 3, beginning in verse 1. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. 
He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He has made my paths crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I have become the laughing stock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Remember my afflictions and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes. Let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he cause grief, he will have compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. To crush underfoot all the prisoners of the earth, to deny a man justice in the presence of the Most High, to subvert a man in his lawsuit, The Lord does not approve. Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Why should a living man complain, a man, about the punishment of his sins? Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled, and you have not forgiven. You have wrapped yourself with anger and pursued us killing without pity you have wrapped yourself with a cloud so that no prayer can pass through you have made us scum and garbage among the peoples all our enemies open our open their mouths against us panic and pitfall have come upon us devastation and destruction my eyes flow with rivers of tears because of the destruction of the daughter of my people my eyes will flow without ceasing without respite Until the Lord from heaven looks down and sees. My eyes cause me grief at the fate of all the daughters of my city. I have been hunted like a bird by those who are my enemies without cause. They flung me alive into the pit and cast stones on me. Water closed over my head. I said, 
I am lost. I called on your name, O Lord, from the depths of the pit. You heard my plea. Do not close your ear to my cry for help. You came near when I called on you. You said, do not fear. You have taken up my cause, O Lord. You have redeemed my life. You have seen the wrong done to me, O Lord. Judge my cause. You have seen all their vengeance, all their plots against me. You have heard their taunts, O Lord, all their plots against me. The lips and thoughts of my assailants are against me all the day long. Behold, they're sitting and they're rising. I am the object of their taunts. You will repay them, O Lord, according to the work of their hands. You will give them dullness of heart. Your curse will be on them. You will pursue them in anger and destroy them from under your heavens, O Lord. The Bible is a book that is filled with lament. According to N.T. Wright, around two-thirds of the Psalms are songs of lament. But, as he ironically points out, the book is called Psalms, which means praises. Therefore, lament, though filled with sorrow, is actually a form of praise. Lamenting and complaining are not the same thing. They are not synonymous. Nor are praise and joyful expression. You see, praise is simply an offering to God. No one said it had to be a smiley one. There are three Hebrew words that are translated as praise. One means to make music. One means to sing. And one means simply to confess and declare the character of God, which you can absolutely do even as you express the fullness of your pain in the midst of a terrible trial. So, when we look at lament versus complaint, N.T. Wright puts it like this, a complaint is an accusation against God that maligns his character. But a lament is an appeal to God based on confidence in his character. So a complaint is maligning the character of God, but a lament is affirming the character of God, even in the midst of difficulty. Remember, we established that lament is a cry to a father that we know is listening. The entire reason why we feel comfortable crying that that prayer is because we know that he is there for us. It is beckoning him to pick us up. It is welcoming him into the pain. It's an expression of trust. And so, in this way, as we lament, as we lament our own sin, as we lament the sins of others, as we lament the damage that has been done by those sins, we are actually praising God because we are appealing to the goodness of His good character. Now, in context, we remember that the reason why Jeremiah is lamenting is because of the sins of his people. And we talked about before that not every bad thing you experience can directly be correlated to a sin that you committed or that someone committed against you. Okay? And there are examples in Scripture of lament over things that are happening to you that are not sin-related. One of them is Job, right? And there's a contextual difference between the laments of Jeremiah and the laments of Job. Both are lamenting because of pain that they're experiencing, but their pain is happening for different reasons. 
Job is not experiencing a trauma that's related to sin. And there are times that we endure that kind of pain, right? It's just pain in a painful world. We can't point to something and go, oh, this is happening because of that. But in context, Jeremiah is lamenting because of that sin, okay? They did this, and now this is happening. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't take these laments and apply it to both scenarios, when we're lamenting over the sins of others or, or, and when we're just lamenting over pain. Because lament is based on the character of God, not on the reason for the circumstances. So, Jeremiah hopes. He hopes because he laments. His lament is based on God's character. And so lament preaches the gospel to yourself. It preaches the gospel to yourself and then it preaches the gospel to others. Jeremiah's declaration that we'll look at, this I call to mind, is one of the most beautiful sentences in the Bible. He is saying, I purposely remind myself of this. In the darkest hour, I am grounding myself with this. So, let's dive in. Point number one. Lament paints an honest picture of God's wrath without reducing God's goodness. Lament paints an honest picture of God's wrath without reducing God's goodness. There is... No mincing of words in the first 18 verses, right? Nor is he on the other side of this being melodramatic. Jeremiah is pouring out his soul, and it is filled with pain. He says, I've seen affliction. That affliction is under the rod of God's wrath. He talks about being in darkness without any light. His skin and his bones waste away. He is been besieged and enveloped in darkness and tribulation. He talks about how God has walled him about so that he cannot escape. He has heavy chains that he calls and he cries for help, but he feels like his prayers have been shut out. He's praying and it's not reaching past the ceiling. He pictures God as a bear lying in wait for him, as a lion hiding and waiting to pounce on him, waiting to tear him into pieces. He talks about arrows piercing him. He talks about being the laughingstock of all people, the object of taunts, and that he is filled with bitterness and wormwood. This is not a pretty picture. This is a deep, deep depression. A darkness that is full and complete. And interestingly, Jeremiah describes in this chapter how God is punishing him. All of these statements that he speaks are, you are doing this to me. You are this way. You have turned against me. But how could this be? How could Jeremiah be God's enemy when, when Jeremiah has been the righteous prophet, 
Like we talked about, Jeremiah had a ministry to the people where he was preaching the truth to them. He was telling them over and over, repent and turn from your sins. They were the ones who sinned. They were the ones who were unfaithful. He is the one being sinned against here. So how is it that Jeremiah can be saying, you've punished me. You, you've, you've sinned, you, you, you're punishing me. I, I'm like a victim here of your wrath. You're a bear, you're a lion attacking me. How can he say that? Well, we know that no sin happens in a vacuum, right? No sin that you ever commit is ever going to affect just you. And that's part of the lie, right? Every time that we're tempted to sin, part of the lie is this will only affect me. This decision that I make is only going to affect me. But that's not true. Every decision that you make, your decisions are guaranteed to affect the people around you in various ways. And the closer people are to you, the, the, the more in your inner circle, the more they will be affected. So people like your spouse and your children, anyone who's close to you is going to be more affected by your sin. Sin does not happen in a vacuum. But in the same way, This truth also applies to punishment. When you are rightly punished for your sin, that punishment doesn't happen in a vacuum either. The people who are in your inner circle will also be affected by your punishment. They will feel the effects of your punishment, almost as if they themselves are also being punished. Now, they're not being punished for something bad they did, They are being punished for something you did. But your punishment, like your sin, affects them deeply. Again, Jeremiah has been the righteous one here. He's the victim of the sins of the people. But the way that he describes what's happening is that God is punishing him. He has made it very clear, though, in the chapters that we've read so far, that God is in the right for what he's doing. He's not disagreeing with God. He agrees with God. God is rightly punishing Israel for decades and decades of unfaithfulness. But if God aims his arrows of just punishment at Israel, it is impossible for Jeremiah to not be caught in the crossfire. That is why he can accurately say, He has done these things to me. Imagine, for example, Your spouse commits a crime for which they must be imprisoned. Choose any crime. You know your spouse well. Imagine, what crime would it be that my spouse would commit? Did you just say murder? Is that really what you think I would do? Oh, I would think you would murder. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, there's no question about that. Allie would kill someone. Definitely. Under the right circumstances... That's what we hope, babe. We hope that she would not. But pushed to the brink, she might be capable of that. So, picture in your mind whatever that crime is that your spouse would commit. And for that crime, they are rightly imprisoned. But wouldn't their imprisonment also be a punishment for you? While they're in jail, you are left alone. 
having to play the role of both parents, having to provide for the family all by yourself, doing all of the housework, doing all of the breadwinning, all of the shuttling the kids everywhere, all of the, the planning and the executing of every single plan. And then on top of that, you're also lonely. You don't have your partner and your best friend with you because she has murdered someone and is now in jail. You're going to bed every night by yourself. So, in addition to all the extra responsibility that you have in picking up the slack, you're also being robbed of your other half. And so, if you're in that situation, would you not say with all that is in you that you were also being punished? That you had to live with the punishment for their actions? This is why Jeremiah laments. He laments because the sins of others, but because of the sins of, of, of others, God is punishing him as well. And it hurts. And it's dark. And it feels so unfair. It feels as though God has become his enemy. It feels as though, even though he's crying out to God, verse 8, he says, Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He says, I'm praying to you. I'm calling to you for help. I'm asking, and you are not listening. I'm asking you to not do this to me, and yet you keep doing this to me. Jeremiah is stuck in the crosshairs of God's justice between the sinful people and the outpouring of God's wrath. And it feels like God will just not let up. The blows keep coming. The hurt keeps getting deeper and deeper. The darkness keeps pulling him down further and further to a point where he would say, my soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. And so there, in the midst of that prison, what does Jeremiah do? He laments. And lament calls to mind the character of God. As Brunson was breaking in his prison cell, his wife prompted him to consider the character of God. He said, I felt abandoned by God, and in those circumstances, it was easy to let my heart grow cold. But as my wife, Noreen, reminded me, whatever doubts you have, God remains the same. He is faithful. He is true. She didn't look at him and say, hey, it's not that bad, right? Let's just pretend that this cell is, you know, a hotel, you're just staying in a hotel for a while that you can't get out of. Now, she doesn't minimize. She doesn't tell him that, that he needs to just ignore what's going on. What she says is, you need to reflect on the character of God. Whatever doubts you have, God remains the same. He has not changed. He is the same today, yesterday, and forever. He is faithful. He is true. So Brunson said, the only way that I could make it through was to put my mind in an eternal perspective, the unchanging character of God. 
Remember again the words of N.T. Wright where he said, A complaint is an accusation against God that maligns his character. Lament is an appeal to God based on confidence in his character. And so we have Jeremiah writing these words. Remember, these, these are poems that he's written. In these five chapters, four of them are acrostics for the Hebrew language. This is a highly ordered poem. These are not just random words that are uh, coming one by one and he's writing them down. This is highly ordered. This is well considered. He's saying these things on purpose. He is picking these words on purpose. And the reason why he has the confidence to say things like, you are like a bear lying in wait for me. You're a lion. You're tearing me to pieces. You're driving your arrows into my kidney. My soul is bereft of peace. The only reason why he can pray these dark prayers to God is because he knows that God is listening. He knows that God cares. He knows that God is going to act. And so lament paints a very clear picture of God's wrath, but it also sets itself on the eternal character of who God is. It prays to him in the midst of that darkness. It trusts that he's going to do something. And the thing is, God doing something might seem like it's taken forever. The circumstances aren't changing. For a long time, it seems like nothing is happening here. So what does lament do? Lament preaches the gospel. This is point number two. Lament preaches the gospel to your broken heart. Lament preaches the gospel to your broken heart. Again, those words in 17 and 18. My soul is bereft of peace. I've forgotten what happiness is. So I say my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. In verses 19 and 20. Jeremiah says that his soul is continually remembering affliction, continually remembering wandering and wormwood and gall. These are the things that are enveloping him, the darkness that is pulling him down. But, but, Verse 21, but this I call to mind. But this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. Last week, 
I said that this is one of the top five chapters in all of the Bible. And I agree. As we're reading through this, hopefully you are seeing why I believe that this is one of the best places in all of Scripture. That there are few places that are more beautiful than this because we have Jeremiah in a solitary prison of brokenness. And what is he doing? He is doing exactly what Andrew Brunson described. He is turning himself. Brunson said, I turned even one degree toward God, and that made all the difference from turning a degree away from him. And ironically, I don't know if this was on purpose, but Brunson could not have used a better word to describe what is happening, that word, turn. There is a fascinating juxtaposition in the first half of this chapter and the second In the first 18 verses of this chapter, every section begins with, he has. He has. God has. Specifically, he describes, he has done this to me. 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 Every section in the first 18 verses begins with, he has. In the last 23 verses, in the the last part of the chapter, it's, you have... And you will. And specifically, you will do this for me. So in these two halves of this chapter, he juxtaposes the feelings of you have done this to me with the promises of you will do this for me. And right in the middle, the hinge of the entire book is him saying, I will do this toward you. In fact... If we boil it down to the Hebrew, the key word of this entire chapter is the Hebrew word shuv. Um, this is not a literal, this is a, a transliteration. You can write it down S H U V, shuv. This chapter is summed up in three shuvs. Chapter 3, verse 3 Against me he turns. Chapter 3, verse 64, turn their works against them. And verse 21, I turn my mind to you. This word shuv means to turn. And it's used many times in many ways throughout the Old Testament. But the essential basic meaning of this word shuv is to turn or to return. So the shuv number one is the full expression of the feeling that God has turned against him. Shuv 2, Jeremiah is turning his mind to God. And Shuv 3 is the promise that God will turn against Jeremiah's enemies. This word, Shuv, is the twelfth most commonly used verb in the Old Testament. It is used over a thousand times. It is all over the Old Testament. And interestingly... No one in the Old Testament uses the word more than Jeremiah. Most commonly, this word is used to refer to people turning back to God or turning away from God. And so, typically, this word refers to either repentance or apostasy. It's used in a covenantal context many, many times, and none more so than in the writings of Jeremiah. And so in every covenantal case, when this verb is used, 
of people or of God, it is used as an intentional decision. Shuv doesn't happen by accident. It is an action of the will. Remember what Andrew Brunson said, I made a decision to turn. There are absolutely places in the Old Testament where the word reflects something happening to you. Like its very first use in the book of Genesis where it says, From dust you were made, to dust you shall shove, you shall return. But this is not a case where shuv happens to you. In this chapter, in this, it is a choice to shuv, to turn your mind to the gospel. His mind has been filled with darkness. It is filled with pain. It is filled with anguish because of the circumstances that he is in. And so he makes this choice. This choice that he makes is to turn his mind to the gospel. He says his soul is continually remembering his affliction. And so what he has to do is call to mind. This I call to mind. In Hebrew, literally, this I turn my mind to. This does not mean that he is denying the reality of what he's going through. This does not mean that he is pretending that everything is sunshine and rainbows. This is not pretending that things are any different than what they are. It is not ignoring the problem. It is not saying everything is okay when everything is absolutely not okay. That's not what this is. This is doing what the old hymn states when it says, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Jeremiah fully expresses the darkness of his soul. And then he intentionally turns his gaze upward to the only unshakable hope that can be found in the middle of the wreckage. He turns his mind to gospel hope. He intentionally preaches the gospel to himself. Paul David Tripp says this, No one is more influential in your life than you because no one talks to you more than you. No one is more influential in your life than you because no one talks to you more than you. Anybody talk to themselves? If you're not raising your hand, you're a liar, okay? You know how many arguments I've won in the shower? Every single one of them, okay? I have never lost an argument in the shower. We all talk to ourselves. The problem is when we let ourselves do the talking. If I'm being led by my own flesh, instead of telling my flesh what to do, that is when I fall into despair. I must talk to myself. I must direct the truth to myself. You want to know what this looks like? Psalm 42. Uh, I didn't put this on the screen, so you'll just have to trust me that this is in the Bible. Psalm 42. says, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. 
My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Notice that this is lament. Notice the the parallels between this and lamentations. He says, my tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I will remember as I pour out my soul. How I used to go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Doesn't this sound like what, what Jeremiah is talking about? It, it sounds like I, I used to have something good and I no longer have it. My tears have been my food all the day long. But then, verse 5, he says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you. Therefore I turn my mind to you. From the land of Jordan and Hermon, from the, from the Mount Mazar, deep calls to deep. At the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? He's in the middle of it, right? Then he repeats, verse 11. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. You have this guy who's clearly in the middle of the turmoil. And he's looking at it. And his soul is downcast. And he sees all the pain. And he's saying to himself, preaching to himself, Hope in God. Ah, but all this is happening and this is terrible and this is hard. Yes, I will hope in God. I will turn my mind to this. I will remember. Similarly to what uh, Paul David Tripp said, Martin Lloyd-Jones in his book Spiritual Depression said, the problem is that we allow ourselves to speak to us rather than speaking to ourselves. We are to remind ourselves to turn to the truth. That is what lament is. Lament is the spiritual discipline of speaking the hope of the gospel to ourselves in the worst of times. It is to grab ourselves by the soul and say to the soul, hope in God. Turn yourself to him. Sit in silence, fully experience the trial, but hope. Remember who God is. Know that this will not last forever. It is to grab yourself by the soul and look into its eyes and speak the gospel to it. That is the discipline of lament. But there's one more thing that is involved in this. One more added step, one more place of freedom. There is one more turn. There is one more shuv. Point number three. Lament, trust in God 
to be in charge of vengeance. Lament, trust in God to be in charge of vengeance. In the third shuv, the last section of the chapter, Jeremiah depicts God as the righteous judge. The righteous judge who will take up the cause of the victim and ensure that justice is done. Look at some of the things that he says. He says in verse 58, You have taken up my cause, O Lord. You have redeemed my life. You have seen the wrong done to me, O Lord. You've seen it. You're aware. You know. Judge my cause. You have seen all their vengeance, all their plots against me. You have heard their taunts, O Lord, all their plots against me. The lips and the thoughts of my assailants are against me all the day long. Behold, they're sitting in their rising. I am the object of their taunts. You will repay them, O Lord. According to the work of their hands, you will give them dullness of heart. Your curse will be on them. You will pursue them in anger and destroy them from under your heavens, O Lord. Here, in this third shuv, Jeremiah says, I know that you will turn against my enemies. You will. I will turn to you, and I know you will turn against them. He doesn't say, I will turn against them. He doesn't say, I will turn and make them pay. He says, I will turn to you. And I trust that you will turn against them. This, my friends, is an essential part of freedom. When we take it upon ourselves to be the purveyors of justice, it does nothing but weigh us down. There will never be anything that feels like enough. We will become enslaved to revenge, enslaved to restitution and recompense. But nothing ever feels freeing. Nothing ever feels good enough. No amount of paying someone back will ever make you feel better. When justice is in your hands, you will always be a slave. And even if you enact that revenge, there is no satisfaction. You still are a slave to it. What lament does is it entrusts that justice to God. It takes justice and says, you're in charge of this. I don't have to be in charge of this. I don't have to manage this. I don't have to control this. This is not up to me. I know that you'll turn against them and you will make the wrong things right. Here's what this looks like. Again, I didn't put this on the screen. I promise you it is in here. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 24. Peter is talking about Jesus. Specifically in the context, he's talking about submission to authority. He says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God... One endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. So he he says, there's going to be situations where you are sinned against. There's going to be situations where people take advantage of you. And your responsibility in those situations is not to enact revenge, but, he says, what credit is it if when you're sinned, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good 
and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Peter says that we serve a God who suffered unjustly. He was insulted. He was reviled. He was traumatized through no fault of his own. He was tortured, he was betrayed, he was reviled, he was cursed, and, dare I say, besmirched. But what did he do? Again, this is Jesus, okay? This is God, the God who created everything. But he was also, at the very same time, a man. He was a human man, and he was fulfilling the life that we were supposed to live. Not only did Jesus die the death that we should have died, he also lived the life that we were supposed to live. And in doing so, he emptied himself of the divine rights in order to live that life. And so Peter tells us that when he was reviled, he didn't revile back. When he suffered, He didn't threaten that he was going to make them suffer. Even though he absolutely could have. It was well within his power to do whatever he wanted to make them pay. In fact, when he was arrested, Jesus said, "Uh, Guys, don't you think if I wanted to, I could call down legions of angels to come to my aid? Jesus says, God, put, put the sword down. You're not helping me, dude. Don't you think I could call an entire legion of angels and wipe all of these suckers out? Absolutely I could. He could have just snapped his fingers and all of them melt painfully. But he didn't. Instead, what Peter says He continued to entrust himself to the one who judges justly. Vengeance is mine, thus saith the Lord. So Jeremiah says in verse 64, You will repay them, O Lord. You, not me, you will repay them. He says, you've seen the wrongs that have been done to me. You know what's going on. I don't have to tell you. I don't have to describe to you all of the things that have happened against me. I trust that you have been paying attention because you are a good father. You are a God who is just. And so I trust you to redeem my life, to enact judgment, whatever that looks like. I trust you to free me from the pain that I have been caused. But also, I trust you to free me from the burden of fixing the mess. The burden of righting the wrongs. The burden of settling the score. This, my friends, is an act of freedom. 
Lament frees you from managing. It frees you from overseeing. Lament says, Lord, here is the fullness of my pain. You take it. You control it. You manage it. Now this doesn't mean, I don't want to make you any false promises here, okay? This does not mean that the pain magically goes away. Remember, remember what Brunson said even in his prayers? It wasn't like he magically got out of prison, all right? Uh, in chapter 4, after this incredibly beautiful chapter, if you continue to read, chapter 4, the lamenting continues in earnest, all right? It, it is not as if he speaks this promise of hope and then all of a sudden the ruins rebuild themselves. There are no quick fixes, And part of what this shows us is that even after you trust God with something, sometimes you're still hurting. And it's okay to continue to express that. It's okay to continue to feel what you feel. It's okay to walk through the full range of emotions as you walk through the wreckage. But now you're no longer a slave to it. You can express it and you can fully feel it. It is good to have feelings. It is not good for your feelings to have you. This is what that looks like. Brunson and his wife are in the United States today. But their desire, somehow, is still still to return to Turkey. He says, after 23 years of serving as church leaders in Turkey, God put some of his love into our hearts for them. He says, so it's not so much an emotional attachment as we're committed to seeing blessing for Turkey because of God's love. And so we have a desire to go back. I don't really like the Turkish government. I feel like they stole two years from me. But God has redeemed it. And I believe that what I went through, what I suffered is actually going to bring blessing to Turkey. Can you express your pain in this way? To allow God to redeem your pain through preaching the gospel, to trust him to be in charge, to hope for nothing more than for the kingdom to advance. The only way, the only way to that is gospel-filled lament. And so I pray that we all learn how to practice that. Let's pray. God, thank you.